Welcome to Mother Bodies, the podcast about postnatal health and why it matters. I'm your host, Rosie Taylor. I'm a journalist, and I'm on a mission to find out why we so often fail to give mothers the care and support they need after birth. It's fabulous to have you back for this second series, or welcome to those of you listening for the first time. Just in case you're new to Mother Bodies, let me tell you what the podcast is all about. Every week, I speak to an expert or well-known mum. Together, we debunk myths and break down taboos around postnatal health and discuss why the system is failing so many women and what we can do to change parents' lives for the better. This is Mother Bodies. I just wanted to start with a warning that this episode does feature a lot of discussion about pregnancy loss, miscarriage and infertility. So if that's not something you feel comfortable listening to right now for any reason, then please feel free to skip this episode or save it for the future. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Jenny Ag. Jenny is a health and science journalist and author of the award-winning blog, The Uterus Monologues, where she discusses her experience of recurrent miscarriage. The blog formed the inspiration for her new book, Life Almost, which is published by Transworld and out now. Jenny experienced four miscarriages before she had her son, Edward, during lockdown in 2020. I started my chat with Jenny by talking about how postnatal recovery is something your body has to go through, regardless, sadly, of whether your pregnancy ends in a live baby or not. But this side of postnatal health, the idea that our bodies have to recover after miscarriage or baby loss, is probably one of the greatest taboos that still exists around women's bodies. We are hearing those stories a little bit more, but often it's they had a miscarriage, they lost a baby, and you don't hear the kind of details. Some things are very hard to hear. I understand that. And some things are also very private and people don't feel comfortable. But there's definitely a line, I think, between like we need to be informed. And I, I didn't know anything really. And I didn't have any information in my first pregnancy about miscarriage at all. It sounds silly to say, but I didn't know where to go when I thought I was miscarrying that first time like I didn't know if I could go to A&E I mean in the end it became obvious that that was it was a weekend and that was kind of my only option so that was kind of the level of the extent of what I didn't know really and after I'd been admitted to A&E they were able to scan me on an early pregnancy unit um, which confirmed that you know that they couldn't see anything still in the uterus so they were fairly certain that you know the miscarriage was complete to use the kind of clinical terminology and I think they talked me through you know to expect that I would probably continue to bleed for for a few weeks afterwards but the thing that really kind of uh caught me unawares was they said oh and of course you'll need to take a pregnancy test in a few weeks time because it's a kind of safety measure really I think if a pregnancy test is still coming up positive several weeks down the line it suggests that there's something going on there perhaps there's some retained tissue you know which could potentially cause problems but of course in that moment you're like hang on you've just told me that I've lost my baby and that I'm not pregnant I'm not going to have that baby and now I've got to take a pregnancy test in the hope that it will come up negative and I it's such a cruel twist like even describing it now like it kind of stops me in my tracks yeah nobody had prepared me for that I'd not heard that anywhere so that was the first thing in terms of that sort of 
postnatal, if you want to call it postnatal recovery period. And, you know, I think they talk to you about your period should come back when and they I've been told slightly different things each time. But I think the advice I was given was that there's no waiting period to try to get pregnant again, though they recommend that you wait until you've had at least one period. Mm-hmm. Um because I, I think that's linked to those that sort of idea of making sure that hormones have kind of returned to normal. I don't want to give anybody the wrong medical information, but that question of when you can try again, there's a lot of conflicting information out there on this. So you might be physically fertile, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're sort of emotionally and mentally in the place to try for another pregnancy at that point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? Personally, I felt very anxious to be pregnant again. Like that felt like that was the only, like solution sounds like the wrong word, but it felt like the only thing that was going to help was to be pregnant again. But not everybody feels that way. And also in hindsight, I kind of wish that I'd perhaps taken a bit longer and to just let myself recover a little bit more, I think. But then it's difficult because there are so many unknowns there. You know, it had taken me 10 months to get pregnant. I didn't know if it was going to take me 10 months again and nobody can really tell you anything much at all you know there's no kind of was it going to happen again and obviously they they try to reassure you that the odds are it won't and you know I really hope anybody listening to this who's had say one miscarriage doesn't I don't want to scare anybody with my story because while you know a not insignificant number of people do have recurrent miscarriages statistically that is not the norm I completely understand why you feel conscious about the idea of scaring people. Mm. And and I felt the same with talking about my, you know, traumatic birth experience. You don't want to scare anyone or freak anyone out or give anyone any more anxiety than they already have in what is a difficult time. But also I think so much of the reason that we're scared is because we don't know. Yeah, Yeah, and definitely. I mean, yeah, what you were saying about having to have that pregnancy test afterwards and that sort of real hammering that point home that you're not pregnant anymore. Yeah. awful that you have to go through that yeah but part of me wonders whether you feel it would have been less awful if you'd known before all of this happens the sort of mechanics of actually what miscarriage is how it works and why doctors have to test afterwards to make sure it's not there there's no no question really I think pretty much everything that we've been through it would have been made a lot better if we just knew more about it if we had more insight into it. I think nothing's going to make you happy to take that pregnancy test to confirm that, you know, your miscarriage really is over, that your pregnancy really is over. But at the same time, it doesn't have to feel like a complete shock that it is. And it just feels like what, to be honest, it just can feel like one shock after another. And kind of going back to that sort of being prepared for what might happen physically. So I think there are two strands to that in that. So I definitely was not prepared for how physically traumatic a miscarriage can be. I wasn't prepared for the sort of abdominal cramps that came with it felt, you know, they came in a sort of contraction like pattern. And I, you know, the first moment it had occurred to me that a miscarriage might feel like that was as it was happening, driving to the hospital, that scene felt like that kind of classic oh, I'm in labour driving to hospital Mm. theme, but turned into something kind of dark. And like, I knew I wasn't leaving hospital with a baby. Yeah. But it just had never, 
occurred to me and I think that is because we don't really hear those stories you know often those stories as we said before they're quite sanitized and there are still those kind of unhelpful ideas that get thrown around quite carelessly like oh you know miscarriage is just a heavy period and there's nuance because for some people depending on the stage of gestation like that might physically be the case but it's often not you know all my miscarriages were in the first trimester and I wouldn't describe any of them as like a heavy period like yeah it's just not not the same at all and the other I guess the other side of the coin is that something I didn't know about until I wrote a, a piece for a newspaper after my first miscarriage I didn't know that you can have a miscarriage without any symptoms it's called miss miscarriage and you don't know that something has happened until you go for your first scan whether that's an earlier scan or whether it's that kind of first 12 week screening scan I was remember being really shocked when I read that that could happen and that again is like a completely different idea I think that a lot of people have about miscarriage like this idea that there can be no outward sign it's diagnosed on a scan then you have to decide what you do whether you wait whether you take medication whether you go and have a minor surgical procedure which can involve general anaesthetic like that's a whole dimension to the experience that I think a lot of people still aren't aware of. You've just got no frame of reference going in and yeah. you're very at the mercy of who you see in that moment and how, you know, how stretched that particular unit is on that particular day. I've been really lucky. I don't think there could have really been much improvement in the way that I was kind of advised on. You know, They talk about managing, <laughs> managing yeah. your miscarriage, which is not it's not great terminology is it but you know the the way that I was talked through the options and I was given three options and I was talked through very gently and patiently and I was given lots of space to make that decision but that isn't always what happens and I think some women aren't and I don't know if this is a like is something that's changed during the pandemic and then now we're kind of still feeling the after effects but you know women if not explicitly told but sort of dissuaded from having say the surgery I don't know because it involves more people it involves more resources it involves more contact costs you know cost more yeah like let's yeah. let's be honest and if you don't know that that's an option and an mm. option that people can and do have all the time you're not going to push for it or ask for it I mean it sounds like obviously you know, it's an awful situation none of us want to be in it but information would help if we knew our options we knew how it worked going into that scenario, then we could have a slightly less difficult experience, perhaps have an experience that is associated with perhaps less trauma. Because I think a lot of trauma comes from when things happen to you that you're not expecting and you're yes. not prepared for. Yeah, exactly that. And that's something that I, so I interviewed some psychologists for the book and a trauma specialist. And that is something that came up, which is this idea that being unprepared and feeling unsafe in a particular moment is why we experience something as a trauma that I mean that's not yeah. to say that you know it won't be an upsetting experience or a really difficult experience but it's not it's not inevitable I mean it sounds like such a low bar doesn't it it's not inevitable that a miscarriage will give you PTSD like and that yeah. we know from the research now that, that that does happen that is happening yeah so it's kind of an indictment, really, I think, of how unprepared people are when these things start happening to them. What do you think we could do to ensure that we all 
sort of know more and understand more and are prepared in the case this happens because it happens in one in four pregnancies mm. isn't it is that something one in four one in five it's yeah it's very yeah. common I mean a lot of miscarriages happen even before you've had a booking appointment and that's probably not the time yeah. you want to hear about miscarriage anyway but you know maybe earlier in school or do we just need to be talking more openly with each other about it yeah it's a good question because something I found since having my son is that actually the subject comes up a lot more in parenting spaces so you know I've had conversations not prompted by you know talking about my work particularly but but conversations about infertility or miscarriage sort of more spontaneous conversations and I think part of the question or problem perhaps is how do you open up that conversation before people enter that space so before Mm. they are considering a pregnancy or before they've had children or before perhaps their friends have children I I think we could do a lot more on the kind of purely practical medical side I mean you don't want to turn up at your GP for the first time and they go well you know one in four you you don't want to go in with that like (laughs) that's not the time I don't think we need to know before (laughs) that's not the way but I think I just it's a question of proportion really and I think of all the information I was given the first time I went I think I must have been given it at my booking in appointment I was given all these leaflets but I was also given like a pregnancy magazine and in this magazine there were loads of stuff on like going on holiday while pregnant and stretch marks and you know all questions that people will have it's not that that shouldn't be talked about or covered but there wasn't really anything on miscarriage there was I think when I went back and looked, there was a tiny, like literally a two line paragraph saying some pregnancies end in miscarriage. But in terms of more practical information, it just wasn't there. And some people are going to choose to not read about that, aren't they? Like they're going to go, do you know what? I need to not worry myself. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't know. I'm not sure it's I'm not sure that kind of we don't want to worry people is enough. I think often it's just a bit of an excuse. And also I think part of that is we don't talk about it or we don't give pregnant women that information because there's actually very little we can tell them. Mm. So you can kind of say lots of people have a miscarriage. It will probably be fine next time. But in terms of the like if you actually try to drill down into the detail of why it happens, why it happened to you specifically, what's going on in your specific case, you're not really going to know it makes it very difficult to give people information and so you kind of go around in this kind of vicious circle I think. It's also this idea isn't it that well we don't want to mention it almost as if by mentioning it it will affect whether or not it will happen but if you don't mention it it still happens. Yeah I think that's really that is so deep-rooted isn't it in our culture and our our culture around pregnancy specifically like the very fact that we still have this convention that you don't reveal a pregnancy until after the 12 week scan and the reasoning for doing that I think for a lot of people is like I remember saying this to Dan the first time I was pregnant which was oh um we won't say anything in case something happens but we didn't really think about what the in case was you just kind of assume Mm. it won't and just sort of go along with I guess what you see everybody else doing around you and I think that sets up lots of quite unhelpful things which is one this kind of superstitious idea that it's bad luck to reveal a pregnancy before 12 weeks it's like "Mm, (laughs) no yeah like that's not got anything to do with it it's just that miscarriage is most common in the first trimester 
It feeds into this idea that there's something shameful about it, isn't it? Yeah, something definitely. to be hidden and concealed. And then so then when it does happen, you feel somehow more alone in it, I think. You can't tell anyone or you haven't maybe told anyone that you're pregnant and yeah, it and makes... that adds to that secrecy and the lack of information and that all of that. Yeah, it really does. Obviously your blog and the book now are really great in sort of kickstarting those conversations and sort of normalizing the fact that it is okay to talk about pregnancy loss and it's okay to talk about miscarriage and it's something that happens to lots of people and I think people like yourself are fantastic for opening the doors for people to have those conversations privately and I certainly know that one of my friends went through a miscarriage a few years ago and she was just so horrified about what happened and that she'd know nothing about it that she filled us in in absolute blow by blow detail about everything that happened and how she felt and different pains and bleeding and all the different hospital appointments she had to have and actually I'm so grateful that she did because I think that was the most information I've ever received in my life about something that happens to like a lot of women and you know it shouldn't have to be up to my friend to tell me all her personal details. No, but good for her. Um, I'm so sorry that that happened to her, but also that is an amazing service. I guess. Yeah. And because it is shocking, you know, so much has happened to, to us and, you know, and having gone on to have a child, it's easy to start to kind of minimise your own experience. But actually, it is really shocking just what can happen to you physically and the kind of way that you're treated and at the same time you're being told oh but yeah this is really common which you kind of makes you hear that as oh this is really normal which you then hear that as oh what so I should be okay with this Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy I think to go from one thing to the to the next I don't think we should accept that frankly which isn't the same thing as saying all miscarriages can be prevented or that you know every miscarriage is kind of call for incredibly invasive medical testing it's more nuanced than that but it I think there's definitely a lot more that we could do and should be doing to work out whose miscarriages can and should be prevented in coming up with things that actually might help for people who have multiple miscarriages obviously in your book you you talk quite a bit about there being a total lack of research and investigation into this area but the studies that have been carried out there has been a suggestion that miscarriage could be an indicator of wider health problems and can you talk a little bit about what some of that research shows? I'll just preface this by saying just for anyone listening who has had a miscarriage or several miscarriages like there's quite a lot to take on which is that actually there yeah that there might be longer term health risks associated I'm going to say associated like because this is all like as far as I can tell this is quite emerging research yeah and and just because scientists have noticed correlations doesn't necessarily mean that one yeah like all those kind of usual caveats but I'm just very aware that like when you have a miscarriage or pregnancy loss of any kind like you kind of feel like you're given bad news after bad news (laughs) so this is with all that in mind, there have been some studies that have found a link with risk of cardiovascular disease later in life. There have been a few studies, I think for in 2021 and 2022, there was a systematic review that found that the history of pregnancy loss has this link with heart disease and stroke. 
and there's some nuance within that like depending on the number of miscarriages and the the kind of things that might occur later in life but you know there is this potential link and a few different papers and I think a panel of cardiac experts basically argued that we need to be monitoring for this we need to be following Mm. up those women we need to be asking about it when we're looking at heart health later in life and you know there are lots of unknowns it might just be coincidental it might be that there are other things that predispose you to pregnancy loss that also it doesn't mean that the one causes the other but it has also been suggested that there's something physiological some common root cause for both these things and if that's not an argument for why we need to take it more seriously I don't know what is and it's really interesting because one of the most common things that they check for when you're referred for miscarriage investigations in this country that's usually after you've had three miscarriages one of the most common things to that they might find and certainly that they check for routinely is a condition called antiphospholipid syndrome which is sometimes called Hughes syndrome or sticky blood it's the kind of nickname that it gets given and like it's quite a complicated condition but fundamentally it's a clotting disorder and what they since found is that that condition it's I don't know if it's the most common but it's certainly one of the most common reasons for heart attacks and strokes in the under 50s so that you know we should take miscarriage seriously in and of itself like for you know for the distress that it causes people and the kind of uncertainty that people live with and all the rest of it but at the same time it's often seen as specific only to your fertile years and only to women and you know and once you have a baby well you know that's fine we can tie it all up in a neat little bow and the problem is resolved does it really matter if we didn't find out why you were having all those miscarriages you have a child now and you're fine and it's like well what else might we discover yeah it definitely warrants more research yeah there are really potentially fascinating and important things about our health and our bodies that we could learn and I just kind of feel like we've not even really begun absolutely and it's interesting you just mentioned this idea that regardless of whether you've had one miscarriage or more if you do go on to have a healthy baby there's this big sort of attitude of like oh well never mind let's move on you know you've got a baby now that's what you wanted and I know you talk about this in the book but how much have you and your husband come up against that kind of attitude since you became parents it comes up in incidental ways I think so it comes up when people ask you oh well you know when are you going to have number two or when are you going to have you you know you think you'll give them a sibling and mostly you know the people closest to us I think are are very aware of what we went through and also how difficult that pregnancy with Edward was but it's that wider social circle and I think that idea of well it must all be resolved now you know you've had one child you must be able to have another I remember being really struck by it in the kind of first few weeks when Edward was born I mean literally as we were waved out of the maternity unit, they said, oh, see you next time. It was like, oh, is this what it's going to be like now? It just doesn't occur to people. And like, that's in a way, that's a nice thing because it means that they haven't had to live with that or see up close, you know, that it, it just isn't that simple. But it is tricky. And, you know, often it's in situations where you, for whatever reason, you 
don't really feel like you can go well actually it took us best part of five years to have our son you know we didn't ever really get any reason or diagnosis for why I'd had so many miscarriages we did try in my pregnancy with Edward was the first time that I tried taking progesterone and that was that since gone on to kind of make its way into the the nice guidance for people who have pregnancy loss but it wasn't at the time I kind of had to push for it and but we don't know for certain if that's what made the difference and so there's a lot going on there there's a lot kind of if we do decide to try for a second child like for us we just kind of know that nothing is guaranteed and also there's that question of it might be possible but if we were to try and I was to have another miscarriage like part of me feels I just don't know whether I can put myself through that again like there's a lot of complicated things to work through there and I I'm not sure that for most people that's really in their like sphere of consciousness like I think perhaps we're making a little bit of headway with the kind of don't barrel up to uh, couples without children and ask them so when are you going to have kids like perhaps we're just about chipping away at the you know that might not be a socially acceptable question I just don't think we're there at all with like well you know they'd really like a sibling what age gap would you like it's like I completely relate to what you're saying I think people trot out the when are you having number two question so easily and so so freely with none of perhaps the like caution that people might ask about you know a couple that's been married and it's been four years and there's no child like you know some people will still be like oh have you not thought about having children most people I think nowadays are a little bit like well it's up to them and there may be lots of reasons and it's nothing to do with us but with second kids that barrier just doesn't seem to be there it's just like the entire clock resets really I think it's like oh well they've had one so everything must be fixed and actually it doesn't tally with the kind of reality at all which is that the proportion of people who experience secondary infertility is as high if not slightly higher as primary infertility so people who struggle to conceive after they've had one child or previous children and also I think something we don't hear about very often is how it feels to have miscarriages once you started your family and again logically miscarriage does sadly it does increase with age therefore for a lot of people their first experience of miscarriage might be as they're trying to have their second or third child that might be their last experiences of pregnancy. That might be when they go, do you know what? We've got one child, we've got two children, whatever it is, I can't do this again. Like, And we don't really hear about that or really consider it. Yeah, there's a real danger, I think, isn't there, of minimising it? Mm. Of sort of like, well, you've already got one. Yeah, You know, you definitely. should be grateful. Definitely. And, I, you know, I feel this really strongly as someone that I, I suppose I have secondary infertility. It's a kind of mm. complex situation in that, My son was conceived via IVF and so obviously I know what it's like to struggle to conceive and I'm you know realized that I'm very lucky not to have experienced miscarriage but I'm in this sort of strange situation where my son wasn't the only embryo that was conceived in our IVF cycle there were two others and got 50 50 chance of survival so in my head I always sort of thought that was one other child and that my son would have a sibling but since I've had my son I've developed health complications that mean it's not safe for me to get pregnant again and so yeah this weird sort of situation where we have essentially conceived but I can never carry that pregnancy and you know I won't 
get to have another child and it's sort of difficult for lots of reasons because on one hand I sort of feel like it doesn't count as a loss I've never carried those children I haven't experienced miscarriage I feel like I sort of don't have a right to join that club but equally you know I do still grieve for these child children that I can't have and so often I get the like oh you've had one and even though even with people that know that we went through IVF the assumption is like well you've had one so clearly everything works now and it must all be fine and I I really find that even when I try and kind of kill the conversation a bit and be like well actually you know I don't think we can have more children the amount of people are like why it's astonishing and I'm like do you really do you really want to hear the whole story because it's quite long and quite depressing yeah you know people just don't stop asking it's it it baffles me yeah it's interesting that I'm, I'm so sorry that this is kind of where you found yourself and I I mean for what it's worth I think it really it, like it it does count one of the experts I interviewed who is an early pregnancy specialist and he says it's a continuum I think it all exists on that same continuum it's you know the loss of a future that you perhaps imagined so although you know the finer details and the specifics are different like there's a common thread there so yeah I would never invalidate that experience at all but I think it's like what you say about how people won't let it lie and I think part of that is because if people have no experience of that at all, whether it's kind of infertility treatment or miscarriage, they are very surprised by the idea that you might not know or that um, there might not be answers or that there's not something a doctor can do or that they don't know this yet. I think that just blows people's minds a little bit. And it and actually that combination of the lack of information and the questions people want to ask you almost like outraged on your behalf that can be quite uncomfortable and difficult to talk about we know so little about it don't Mm. we something that I mean I think we sort of touched on it a little bit but this like with this whole idea that once you have a child that solves everything you talk about this really beautifully at the end of your book but I think there's also this idea that it solves everything as in that you've got a child your life will be wonderful now (laughs) everything will be perfect you're living a dream um and obviously the reality is that having a child you know going through pregnancy and birth becoming a new parent caring for a newborn is really difficult and it can be so hard yes and I yeah (laughs) I just thought I'd ask you because you mentioned how you felt a lot of guilt about feeling that it wasn't all wonderful is there anything particularly about sort of your experience of early motherhood and postnatal recovery that was a real shock to you that wasn't the sort of joyful experience you were expecting I mean like lots <laughs> I mean it is all just such a shock isn't it and you know and I kind of hope I get this across in the book which is that I really didn't by my fifth pregnancy I really didn't believe or kind of fully believe that I was going to get to go home with a baby really like until the moment he was born until the moment he was born and made a noise and they put him on my chest and they were happy with it you know like so for me there was the shock of oh wow this is what a baby is actually like this is what it's actually like to look after them but there was also a large part for me that I just I hadn't let myself prepare as much as like I would say how much you can prepare yourself is limited but I hadn't even done that really yeah it's it's complicated I don't think I expected it to be easy but at the same time I think I thought I would enjoy it more than I did those very and I'm talking about those very early weeks and months but I think 
the thing that I struggled with was how to talk about it, how to say, I'm finding this really hard. I think a lot of parents will relate to that idea that, you know, obviously you want your baby, you love your baby, but you can still really not enjoy particularly early motherhood at all. And those two things can coexist. And I think once you add in, you know, previous losses or infertility or this idea that you really, really tried to get that baby and that was kind of your focus, it can become quite all consuming, can't it? I mean, I remember just sort of thinking constantly about trying to get pregnant and um, and then when it does happen, you have this sort of, yeah, this feeling like I should be happy. This is what I wanted. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's that you got what you wanted. So um, you're supposed to have no problems now, which is obviously like is a completely ridiculous kind of pressure to put on yourself and it's not helped by kind of everything that very well-meaning people often say particularly in those kind of very first weeks of the baby which is you know enjoy every minute and or it goes so fast and like and I know now that that's true like it does it really does go so fast but it does not feel like that when you you're at home all day or you have a baby who won't sleep or won't stop crying or who won't feed properly you know all those kind of things that can go on yeah I found that very very hard I felt guilty in so many different ways for not enjoying it knowing that you know there was a time in my life where my dream was to be at home with a baby and here I was and I was kind of struggling and not very happy or at least not very happy all the time like there was Mm. an awful lot that was very joyful but it's like two things coexist like it's some of the best moments of my life and it was also some of the lowest moments of my life but there is something that makes that very hard to say like because you I guess because it feels like you're being ungrateful and because you're very aware that that doesn't happen for everybody or that it so easily might not have happened and I think the thing that really bothered me was that I was finding it harder than other people and I was like surely I should be finding it easier and more joyful than other people who have not gone through however many years trying to have a baby and not everybody's experience is the same of course but I think there are very logical reasons that I would have felt the way I felt you know because for a long time I was kind of shielded from other people's discussions of you know my friends were having children while we were going through our miscarriages and you know mostly everyone was very sensitive to us and so therefore we're not I guess I wasn't the person that a friend is going to come to and say oh my god I am just I'm at my wits end I don't know what to do I hadn't heard those things as much as perhaps I might have done and I it's difficult isn't it because I think sometimes even without that kind of um, nuance in the dynamic like I think sometimes it is still quite hard just to talk about the difficult side of parenting but yes that made sense and it made sense that I hadn't really thought very much about what those early days would be like because there's that part of me that was always protecting myself and not wanting to get my hopes up and all that complicated stuff so now I can kind of see those things and that makes it a bit easier and also part of me wonders if like I'd started kind of reducing everything to I wanted to have a baby but what I really meant was was a family so you your focus is is on the kind of the baby stage but actually it's bigger than that what you want is a family and your children and you want to see them grow up and it's what I was imagining were parts of parenthood that come much later those are the kind of the things that I I'd always imagined were the kind of the joy giving parts of being a parent does that make any sense at all? Yeah, um, no, it absolutely does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually 
regardless of what journeys we've gone on to get there that is the case with a lot of parents like you know you have this dream of having a baby but actually the reality of having a newborn is like you're just basically a baby caring machine aren't you for the first sort of six to 12 weeks are just the longest weeks of anyone's life but once you're even once you're out those sort of first early months, there are always things that are hard, but I just think it does get better and better. Your child just gives you more back and you interact with them more. And the more that happens, the more joyful parenting can become. And, you know, obviously there are always battles. There are always difficulties, but I know what you mean. Like, I think this dream that you have of parenthood of having a child is not necessarily realize the moment you have the sort of squawking newborn baby it's, no, it's much more no. long-term process than that yes exactly exactly so before you go I just asked you the question I asked everyone if there was one thing you could change about the world we live in which would help new mums what would it be I think it would be mechanisms of meaning that more men stay home in those kind of early days and months I'm not uh, good on the kind of the economics and of what would work and what doesn't work. And I know that there are lots of arguments around shared parental leave and what helps people to take it up and what doesn't. But I just think the people I know who had seem to have had the like, not easy, but easiest transition to being parents have been people who've been able to both be at home for a substantial period of time. So three months or six months I just think it is transformative in terms of mother's experience but I think on a kind of macro level having a generation of men who understand the realities of caring basically of caring for small humans is potentially transformative for all kinds of things in society and they see you know the number of times men and particularly older men have expressed surprise to me at how inefficient or unsatisfactory like maternity care or like all those kind of things around women's health they don't have any idea and they're surprised and you're like if you perhaps if you could see this side of life and the way things are like historically we've set up society and it's the way it's run has been set up by people who have not have those caring responsibilities in one form or another whether that's of small babies or whatever it is and therefore we set up pretty much everything in a way that doesn't really work for humans is that just as I say is that just a mad 3am thought um no no I think that's a very legitimate thought it's called the patriarchy (laughs) well yeah I'm like I'm dancing around it aren't I but that's that's what it is but I do think for all kinds of reasons I think ways of making it easier and more appealing and more normal for partners and men in particular to stay at home in those kind of early months and first year. I think you could start to change an awful lot from that. If you'd like to hear more from Jenny, there's plenty of ways you can do that. Of course, you could buy her book, Life Almost, which is out now. She also has a fantastic substack, also called Life Almost, and I put a link to both of those things in the show notes. Jenny's blog, The Uterus Monologues, is at www.uterusmonologues.com and you can follow her on Instagram at Jenny Monologues. Thank you for listening to Mother Bodies and for spreading the word that mum's health does matter. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this episode, please, please don't suffer in silence. I've put some links in the show notes for organisations that offer support. 
Please do remember that nothing on this podcast should be taken as a substitute for proper medical advice. If you have any concerns about your physical or mental health, please contact a healthcare professional like your GP, midwife, health visitor, women's health physiotherapist or your local counselling service. Hit subscribe or follow now to get Mother Bodies every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at Mother Bodies. <laughs>